Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live. We are in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we just had our most recent Canada lunch, which we have here as part of the Canada program. And it's the first speaker of this series that we've brought in from outside of Harvard and outside of the Canada program's umbrella this year. And it's someone who is fighting the good fight for transnational studies and is here to talk about his new book, which is entitled Disaster Citizenship, Survivors, Solidarity, and Power in the Progressive Era. And it's Jacob Remus. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. So you are here up from Brooklyn, New York, where you are currently finishing a stint at SUNY Empire State College. And in the fall, you are joining the Gallatin School at NYU as a clinical assistant professor. So you're moving from Brooklyn to Manhattan. That's right. It's a, it's a long commute. Yeah, that's right. So that's really exciting for you. And, and the book just came out. Uh, from University of Illinois Press, so a, a lot going on. Yeah. So, so it's an exciting time. It, it's it's a fun time because it means that this project that I've been working on for a long time, I get to go around and convince other people to be excited about it, <laughs> and therefore remember my own excitement about it. Right, which can often get lost. Yes. Well, after yeah. ten years, I'm like, I had been really done talking about it. Really, <laughs> nothing new to say, and now I've been going around and talking and and. It's like the uh, it's like whistling while you're afraid. You convince not only everyone else, but you convince yourself as well. <laughs> and the other thing I noticed, it's it's much more striking in person that you are as close to a Justin Trudeau lookalike that I, I've seen since I've been in Boston, at least. Uh, and, and I can only imagine that you get that somewhat regularly. Well, what is funny is I used to get that from Canadians and Canadians exclusively but now that Trudeau has gotten whatever his weird celebrity is in the United States <laughs> now Americans have started commenting on it which I actually find kind of kind of strange it, it meant it also meant when he grew his mustache a few years ago and had that <laughs> disgusting little thing on his lip I took it really personally because I felt like he was besmirching our good looks mm, oh that's an interesting take so he didn't really take into account how you would feel he has never, as far as I know, taken into account how I have felt, which I, I'm a little bit offended about. Right, because you guys are really, really close. Yeah, we, of... we used to be kind of neighbors. I, yeah. I did live on the same island as him briefly. That's true, yeah. You were in Montreal, so there, like, you really should be a situation where if there's some sort of big state dinner, you get called in as, if for no other reason, like a body double. I... A decoy. As as one of the two leading his, Canadian historians of my generation in the United States, <laughs> I actually thought that there was a not terrible chance that I was going to get uh, invited to the state dinner, and sadly, sadly, I was not. Mm. Well, maybe maybe you'll get a, a Senate position. Then you, know, get, you can get appointed as a, as a new senator. I would definitely be independent of the liberals. Yeah. <laughs> So it's interesting. So you made that joke uh, in your talk today. The one of two leading historians of Canada in the United States, the other being Tracy Newman, who I share an office with here in the Canada program. And you say that because there's no competition yeah, for the two of you, precisely. Uh, so why do you think that is? Why why do you not think young American historians are interested in what's going on in Canada? I think it's a uh, 
it's mostly ignorance. And and part of that is understandable, right? I, I always have to remind myself, and I when I get to talk to students about Canada, I always remind my students that Canada is the size of California. It's small. It is kind of easily forgotten about, uh, except when you threaten to move to move there. Mm-hmm. And so on one, so th- so that's part of it, right? So that's part of it is just the fact that Canada is a small country. It is a middle power. The United- Americans are full of ourselves and um, think that nothing else matters unless you are exotic in some way. Uh, I think there's some in- there's some structural reasons for it. Also, uh, Robin Winks had a, has a discussion in his book about the CIA and the Academy about how area studies grew out of World War II era. OSS work and those were divided up based on strategic regions of the world and Canada wasn't a strategic region of the world America, the, the OSS didn't care about Canada and therefore post-war there was no funding for Canada right. and that actually seems like a big part of it is that there's there was never there's never been a an area studies for Canada because which area would it be in? But then the other reason, I think, is that when Canada has has been of interest to Americans, it has largely been comparative. It has largely been, here are these people who are just like us, because in this mode of in this mode of scholarship, there's never any attention to anything other than white Anglophone Canada. Why they're they're just like us, they speak the same language, they're the same mix of religions, they have the same roots in Britain, etc. Why are they different in whatever ways in which they are different? Uh, and I think that that's a, and as a useful way sometimes to think about the United States. I think that I think that Americans could learn can learn a lot from Canada in that comparative mode. But I also think that it means that there's no interest in studying Canada for its own sake. People study France in the United States not just because France has something to teach Americans or teach us something about America, but for the sake of France. Mm. And that does not get... uh, Because of this tradition of comparative work in the United States, that that doesn't really exist for Canada. Could you not make the argument a little bit that the same is kind of true in Canada, that, that Canada or Canadians always are situating ourselves in context to the United States. So you could almost make the case that Canadians don't even think Canada is worth studying on its own, that Canada is there as a comparative element, that it's it's maybe not just symptomatic of the situation in the United States, but it's something that happens in the Canadian... I'm actually really glad to hear you say that, because when I spend a lot of time in Canada, like I, I end up trying to... And I try to think about this when I talk about to students, right? When I'm trying to pitch Canada to the United States and try to explain its difference. And I all... Or what is... Like, try to describe Canada. And it's very difficult for me to describe Canada except in reference to comparison to the United States. Right. Um, and that always makes me feel a little bit bad. <laughs> and so I'm... I mean, and I... Right, like... And like Obviously, that's always the joke about Canada. Uh-huh. But I'm kind of glad to hear an actual Canadian say the same thing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, yes, I think that that's true. I mean, the, right, the joke about Canadian history is that it's just American history 10 years later. Right, yeah. And um, which is actually kind of remarkable how that's been true recently politically, right? That, like, Harper was, like... Bush a little bit later, Trudeau yeah. is Obama just a little bit later. Right. Uh, how that is actually holding holding true. I mean, there's 
definitely a truth to that. Yeah. But, like, so, but then like, I think the question is, like, why? That's And that's a really good question, one that like, I don't know. But it's interesting because, like, I think there are cases in which people will study Canada just for the sake of studying Canada. But at least for me, cultural stuff is always cast as, in comparison to the United States, or as Canadian efforts exist to keep Americans out and American cultural intrusion out, right? So, it's, But isn't that true? Like, isn't that the reason for cultural funding? Like, the explicit reason for cultural I think funding? That's the explicit reason for cultural Well, I think, no. Well, in certain cases, it's explicit. In other cases, it's implicit. Because when they say, oh, we're going to support a Canadian culture, mm. what, that, what that really implicitly means is that we're going to do something that's distinct from the United States. Right. So sometimes it is explicit, like explicit, but it's usually more implicit. But it also then challenges what is Canada. And, you know, the Mason-Wade thing of if there wasn't the United States, Canadians would have had to invent the United States to have something to talk about is, <laughs> is sort of relevant in this, in this discussion because so much of what we do is colored by the, the United States and how we view ourselves is. Like even something like a purely national book about say if someone does a biography of Mackenzie King or something it's impossible to write that without talking about his relationship mm-hmm. with FDR right whereas so, it's really easy to write a biography of FDR without talking without about Mackenzie King. King yeah so it, that's why I think it's sort of a maybe not just a, a product of American ignorance of Canada as to why any American historian's discussion of Canada would be comparative I think it's just a uh, symptomatic of Canadian history in general and the way we write it. Yes, and I think that's I think that's right. And I should say I am trained as Ameri- as an American historian. I am an American. And to some extent my interest in Canada is not comparative per se, but it is driven by my interest in the United States. But I try to make it transnational as opposed to comparative, which is to say I am interested in the way that Canada has influenced the United States and the way that the United States has influenced Canada more than I am in answering the question, why is there this strange country to the north of us that is is familiar but somehow different? Mm -hmm. I would think that Canadian history could do the same thing, right? The Canadian history has to be cognizant of the United States. it's It's a border country, right? I mean, it is cognizant of the United States. But in a, but I think I think Canadianists are better at thinking about the relationship between the United States and Canada as a relationship, mm-hmm. not merely as a sort of a funhouse mirror. Right, and one of the things that I was thinking about while you were talking today is perhaps one of the reasons for that is the strength of American exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. That the only time that you're going to think about Canada is as a comparison, and when something is different. Because uh, you talk about all, if you talk about the ways in which we yeah. are similar, that would question the American exceptionalism and what the American experiment is, and how ingrained those national—I'll use the word myths—are here. Yeah. It, and is that could that be a possible part of why it's done in this comparative way? Yes, and I also think that the sort of the the influences that Canada has had on American history get hidden. Because they're not, with the, with the exception in New England of French Canadians, sort of, 
they're not recognized as ethnic, right? So there's a whole, there are various schools of American ethnic history where people are really interested in Polish history and people where people are really interested in Italian history or Jewish history. And they can be transnational because they're recognized as immigrants. And then, I mean, and in their, in their most, like, uh, boosterish way it's oh look at the Polish contribution to Chicago or right. or whatever and because Anglo-Canadian immigrants have not formed did not form their own their own enclaves did not have their own ethnic newspapers did not really form an ethnicity in the same way there's not the same historiographical trend and so People might reckon, people might say, oh, someone who comes across a Canadian doing American history might say, oh, by the way, he had come from Canada. But it doesn't stand out in the same way as it would if he had been Italian or Polish. Right, right. It, yeah, so that, that's a good point, that we don't have the, the distinct... You used the word uh, diaspora today. Like, I guess yeah. that, that would be the way we would look at it, because you're right, there's no Canada town in New York. Right, like right. The, right, the same way there's Chinatown, so, for now, instance, right? Like, we don't have those Yeah, no, this does not quite... That did not quite explain it, because there were little Canadas in, right. in lots of towns that were French Can that were little French mm -hmm. Canadas. And they're also... For, I mean, they're less forgotten. It's in New England itself, people are more... I have found that people have more popular memory of the existence of French-Canadian migration and of... Canada towns and some of their churches still exist. Some of their institutions still exist outside of New England. It's, it's gone. I, would, I mean, outside of New England, I think people have no idea that there was a enormous French Canadian migration, and so the and they didn't disappear with without a ripple, right? They did have their institutions. They did have a diaspora. They did have a different language, and and somehow, so so my my explanation, I think, doesn't explains too much. So right. I don't, Right, right. So then how, because you're, you're a big proponent of a transnational approach to history. So how do you feel as though that could help resolve the the issues that we've been talking about and, and make Canada more relevant to American historians and make it so that it's not, with all due respect to Tracy, who has written a comparative book, that it isn't exclusively the comparative elements of here's uh, what's going on in the United States, here's what's going on in Canada, compare. Yeah. And and to be uh, full disclosure, my class right now that I'm teaching here is very much a comparison well, and to be fair, of like, America and the United States. That's And so, my book is comparative also. Right? Right. Like my book compares a, a disaster in the United States with a disaster in Canada, and there is more implicit than explicit comparison, but there's, I mean, it's a, it is certainly a comparative project in addition to being a transnational project. And I think that comparative projects are, I think transnational, or comparative projects are useful in lots of ways, not just U.S. Canada. And I, but I do think that they are, that they tend to be useful primarily to teach us about one or the other of the comparisons, right? So, a comparative project, a U.S.-Canada project written by an Americanist is going to mostly be about the United States and not really about Canada on its own terms. Which, again, useful and and just not... That's not quite the same thing. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do is I try to say that... I, I try to look at the way ideas, people, and money cross the border. And... What do you, and, and ask questions about that, both about 
the, the specifics of those people and money and ideas. So what were the ideas? Who were the people? What did the money go for? But also, what did it matter that it was crossing a border? And I try to do that in a way that is both recognizes the presence of the border, but also the contingency of the border. Right. That the border had different meanings and different thicknesses in different times and for different people in the same time, and paying attention to that. Um, but also saying, yeah, so so one of the examples, the, the, the big example of this in, in my book is the money that went from Massachusetts to Nova Scotia after the Halifax explosion. So... The Halifax explosion happens. One of the the telegraphs that that come out of ruined Halifax makes its way to Boston, and for kind of odd contingent reasons, there's a very quick train that goes up from Boston to Halifax. It's the first relief train from out of the region. It becomes this famous thing in 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 Halifax history, and to a lesser extent in Boston history. But part of that then is there is a big fundraising campaign. Uh, that raises essentially the equivalent of seven hundred thousand dollars plus in, in, in of cash and in kind donations, and what that money does is provide not only the material benefits of money, but also it helps to build a tra- what I call a transnational polity, and it happens in both directions. So people in Halifax who wanted more aid than they got would write letters to. The people in Massachusetts, the, the governor of Massachusetts or the head of the, Massa- the relief committee in Massachusetts, and said, I keep hearing all about this Massachusetts money. I want none of it. And people in Massachusetts would write to the relief authorities in Halifax saying, I gave money. How come my cousin hasn't gotten the money that, that she needs? And so what you can see from there is that the, the fact that the money crossed the border gave the people who, both the recipients or the putative recipients and the donors, this political power over politicians and and government officials who officially they had no relationship with. They weren't citizens of Halifax or they weren't citizens of Massachusetts. And yet the very fact of the mobility of money gave them that ability to, to act and to be listened to. So, yeah, let's talk about that a little more because the other example in the book is the Salem fire of 1914. So these things are three years apart. And what you found with Salem was a different reaction, though, that Salem, with a very strong French-Canadian population, that the connections don't seem as strong that way. Yeah, so Salem was a, a big industrial fire, probably the last, I always say it's either was the last or among the last, because it's a little bit unclear to be, it's a little bit hard to be definite, of the big 19th century industrial fires that were endemic to North America. We can think of Chicago, Toronto, St. John's, um, Jacksonville, Boston, uh, Chelsea, Massachusetts, and then Salem in 1914. And about 43% of the families who were affected in Salem were French-Canadian. About 18,000 people were made homeless or jobless. So and I really focused on that 43%. Another, there is definitely work to be done that could that would focus more on the Irish and the Americans and the uh, other folks, but I kind of got distracted by the French Canadians <laughs> and they had to call an end to things. And that was made easier by the fact that they were segregated into different relief camps. So there was a a, a French Canadian relief camp that also had some Italians, and then a Anglophone relief camp 
it was mostly Irish and then some Jews. Uh, and I never was able to figure out where the Poles were put. But <laughs> probably with the French Canadians, because it was probably... No, I, don't, I don't actually know. And what happened with them is I was expecting, because the story of, of the Quebec, of the French-Canadian diaspora, is one of crossing back and forth the border all the time, I was really expecting that that was what was going to happen, that I was going to be able to see these French-Canadians in move back to the farm just for the summer, right? Like, after their apartment was burned down and while they were jobless, they would go and, like, stay with their cousins who were still in the St. Lawrence Valley. Um, and that didn't happen. And not only did that not happen, but they also then didn't go to the big cities of the the Franco-Americanie. The, they didn't go to, or not many of them went to Worcester or Biddeford, Maine, or uh, Holyoke, Massachusetts, or Woonsocket, Rhode Island. They mostly overwhelmingly stayed in uh, the, na- the the neighboring towns and cities from Salem on the north shore of, of Massachusetts. So they went to places like Danvers and Beverly and um, Ipswich and places that are right next door and built institutions there. So almost immediately after there was this large influx of French Canadians in Danvers, which is a town right next to... It's actually, Danvers is actually where the, the Salem witchcraft trials took place. Mm. Uh, so it's right next. It's right yeah. next to there. And almost immediately, they started agitating for a French-Canadian church, mm. uh, much to the irritation of the Irish <laughs> uh, priest who, who said, I, I speak French perfectly well. These people, are, these people are terrible. And so there's all this fighting about where they're going to go to church. But there's, rather than going, to, rather than following and spreading out in the diaspora, they stay really close to Salem. Clearly, Salem had a really important connection for them, right? Clearly, right. their community in Salem was more important than the sort of imagined community of the diaspora. And that, that was a reciprocal feeling also that the diaspora, the neither other diaspora French Canadians nor folks still in Quebec either raised much money or appeared in their newspapers to care very much about the fire. Right, which is very different from what we saw yeah. in, in the other example. But... The, I guess the question would be then, is it necessarily fair to compare these two examples just because of the uniqueness of the French-Canadian situation or the Franco situation in North America that, like, do they relate well enough just because of how the experience of Francophones in North America has been so shaped by the linguistic element and not just linguistic, but I guess everything goes along with being francophone in, in North America, whereas what you see in the Halifax explosion doesn't have the same uh, like what ethnic or, or religious undertones. Like, like, uh, like, are they not two distinctly separate group of people that the relationship between the two events is it too separate yeah. to draw any firm conclusions from? So, yes. I mean, I think that it is... Um, this is where the book is is comparative, but not really comparative. Right. But I, I, I think they are very different, and this is part of the issue. I mean, this is, I think, part of the problem with historic, comparative history, is that everything is so different. Sure. And, and it's really hard to draw these, draw comparisons, because even to big city urban disasters in the U.S.-Canada borderlands in the progressive era have a lot of differences. And this is, I mean, this is one of the criticisms of people that actually when, when the book was a dissertation that um, one of my committee members made of it was 
these disasters are really incommensurate. In one of them, sure, 18,000 people lost their homes or jobs, but nobody died. Or, right. like, a, a small handful of people died. There wasn't the grieving. There wasn't the... It wasn't the same sort of horrible loss as when 2,000 people died. When 1,400 people die immediately, and another 600 right. people die of their injuries, and the entire city is destroyed, and never mind the difference in, like, winter and summer, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I, I, I think the answer is yes, right? Like, that is that is the difficulty. And what the comparisons can do is illustrate is help illustrate those differences and try to make sense of those differences. Mm-hmm. So to me, the really big difference between Salem and Halifax is is less this idea that there's something sort of special about French Canadianness. Although I think there's some there's part of that, that I want to go back to, but it's mostly the difference between a, a, a a disaster at home and a disaster in the diaspora. Okay. And I think in in some ways it's it shouldn't be surprising that the di- that the people in the diaspora in the Nova Scotia diaspora in this case would care more about what's going on at home than that people at home would care about something that happens in one of the many places of the diaspora. Mm. Uh, and so I and I think that Several years ago now, I gave a I gave a paper at a sociology conference um, where a lot of disaster studies stuff happens in in sociology, and so I was there, and I didn't know what to do in a sociology conference, and so I <laughs> I kind of made up this idea of like what happens to disaster, what what do we can we say about diaspora and disasters, and that was sort of part of what I argued, and not I, I sort of made it up, but that that we should be thinking. About that, diaspora is a directional concept, right? right? And we sort of know this, right? That that diaspora goes out; it gets dispersed, and that seems like an important thing to remember when we think about migration and diaspora, even when people are going back and forth. Right. So that's one. I guess that's one answer. The other answer I would say is that what you were saying about French Canadian culture and how like there's a a difference. I was that is part of why I was expecting there to be much more care and attention by French Canadians in say Manchester, mm-hmm. New Hampshire or Woonsocket because there's all of this ideology of how French Canadians in the United States have to preserve their language and their their culture and their religion and how there are these these um fraternal orders that are going to help them do that and they all have to like join in the same clubs and read the same newspapers and do it all in French etc etc and so I thought there was going to be much more of that sort of solidarity of oh the the French so here's an example the, the Union Saint-Jean-Baptiste uh, the fraternal fraternal insurance based in Woonsocket its fourth largest lodge was the Salem Lodge they raised a bunch of money um, though not actually that much like $11 a person $11 per recipient it's like not actually anything that was going to help even then and then two years later they're having the their their convention their big convention and the president says something about how nice it was that they raised money for Salem but he can't remember when the fire was like this hugely important (laughs) event for his fourth largest local lodge he was like a year or two ago (laughs) and it it was really striking to me how it clearly these supposedly important fraternal organizations clearly weren't actually that important right so I think I think that helps us understand a little bit of 
what the experience of the French Canadian diaspora was. Mm-hmm. And part of that is about not just listening to the elites for whom those institutions were really important and to pay attention more to the sort of rank and file members. Mm-hmm. And as it relates then to those, to that rank and file, I mean, the one thing you mentioned there that kind of sticks, sort of sticks out in my, my head is sort of the nature of the disasters. Like an explosion is sort of headline grabbing, right? Like yeah. a massive explosion. Whereas in a fire, this particularly in the early 20th century, isn't really that unique. Like a massive urban explosion versus yeah. an urban fire is a very different type of disaster in terms of what would grab headlines. And if I'm writing a newspaper and you know what's, what's going to sell my newspaper, is like and explosion. The, yeah. like and the war is a big part of that also, right? The, right. The, the Halifax explosion was understood to be an incident of war, mm-hmm. even though it was accidental. And there are these postcards. Um, there's a postcard I have in my book that shows a ruined house, and the caption is, this could be on the battlefields of France. Right. Uh, right. And that wasn't true. I mean, 19... Uh, it was almost it was almost World War One. Everyone right. knew World War One was coming, but it wasn't quite there yet. Right. So so that was one element. And the other is that, like, for as much as, you know, you're, you're pushing here for this transnational study, is that it, another part of this could be that for those Francophones in Quebec who would be looking at Salem, maybe there isn't that same sympathy because it's the United States. And there's, I talk about in my class, and it certainly I think exists, culture, like in pop culture studies, that there's a smugness mm-hmm. in Canada to the United States. Like, well, they don't, like they don't, they're, they're the United States is big power. They don't need our help. I don't know if that really would have existed in 1914, but could there have been this notion that, you know, in Boston, these are the Canadians, big explosion, they need help because it's Canada. Whereas the other way, it's people in Canada saying, well, it's the United States, they'll be fine, they don't need our help. Yeah. So so is there part of like a national, like are there national stories to tell as a result of the transnational Yes, approach? absolutely. And I think it's really important, I think this is part of how a transnational historian like me tries to avoid being an imperialist. Right. Is that we have... Saying that something is transnational and that we should be looking at the United States and Canada together does not mean that we should ignore the national parts of the story, right? And so, for instance, the the local council of women in Halifax, which was like the big, which was like the organization of club women, the sort of progressive women who did a lot of the organizing to help, was was a branch of was not an American organization. It was a branch of a Canadian organization. Now. The, the leading members of it had spent a lot of they'd all spent a lot of time in the United States mm-hmm. but they were organizing a structure that was specifically Canadian one of the leaders one of the leaders of the Red Cross um, a woman named May Sexton was out of town the, the day of the explosion because she was off campaigning for the union government right before the 1917 election right so there are these national these specific national Things that we have to pay attention to, and we don't want to erase. And the, the the specific questions of giving money back and forth. And I think I think part of what what you're getting at is sort of the this discourse of how French Canadians who moved to New England were abandoning the, the right, nation, yeah. right? Like they yeah. were uh, they were like giving up on the on the survivance uh, mission of of French Canada. So yes, although that wouldn't actually that wouldn't explain why the people in Worcester or Manchester yeah, were not were yeah. not more interested. And I, I as part of this, I don't have a 
I don't have... My argument is more we have to think about these events in a transnational region and transnationally. And I am still really... Like, the big mystery... I said this in my talk. the, the, The big mystery that I feel unresolved about is why was there not more cross-border stuff in the after Salem like why was there not more movement of people or of money and I have I mean I have lots of ideas but I don't have a I don't have an argument for that but I think that it has to start with understanding the French that it has to start with understanding the Salem fire in a transnational context which is something that I mean the, the Salem fire has not been studied and so I can't say like other people who have studied the Salem fire but other people who have studied Salem have studied it at industrial Salem, has studied it as one of many industrial towns in New England, not as something in a borderlands. Mm-hmm. And I think that we can't quite, I don't know what the answer is, but we can't start to understand it until we understand that transnational context. I guess this is the same then not true of Halifax, that we view it as a Canadian city as opposed to a, or, or, that we view it as a maritime shipping city ahead of a Canadian city? I think there are a lot of different we's. So I think that... Yeah, that's true. I should never... I always feel bad when I use we because... <laughs> what, is that, like, what does that mean? Like, well, well, I think that's particularly true in Halifax, right? I think that, that Atlantic and... Or maritime Canada historians know... I, when I say to, to people in, who do maritime history that... Halifax was more connected to Boston than it was to Toronto. They, like, that is just a truism, right? Right. Like, that does not surprise them at all. I think that when I say that to people, to to Central Canadians, I was going to say that they are surprised. That's probably not fair. But, uh, uh, like, when I say to Central Canadians, it's more of of a challenge, right? Right. Because because Atlantic Canada knows that history. Atlantic Canada has had out-migration to... For generations to to the to the Boston right. states, right? Like right. every Atlantic Canadian knows the phrase "the Boston states." It's a right. joke, um, right? And, and so, then, but I think so it depends that, what the we is, right? Like, right? Because I think I mean I I am a Central Canadian, right? So I, I grew up in Southern Ontario. And I one think, of those. Yes, I'm I'm on the evil side of this. But like, if you had said that people in in Halifax were closely connected to say Portland, Maine. That would have made a lot more sense to me than Boston because I, we think of Boston and this we is central, or at least how about the high school I grew up in? Um, we consider Boston, you know, a major urban American center that would be so distinct from Halifax. Whereas Portland, a city like Portland, mm. similar, a shipping town on the coast, but smaller, right? Like, like Boston just has this sense of, of grandeur that goes beyond what Halifax right. would have. So, I, you know, and I think that might speak to a Canadian inferiority complex <laughs> that, you know, I would think of something like Portland, Maine as being more Halifaxy than Boston. Um, right. So, so they, and, and just geographically that, they're just that much closer as well. Right. And not that Boston is super far from Halifax, but it's not right next door. Right. So, I mean, that, so that... As a central, like from a central is perspective, like that would make more sense. Yeah. To me. But I do think you're right that Halifax is a port city. Mm-hmm. It is famously a port city, right? Like, I mean, it was the city. One of the reasons it was rather big at the time of the explosion is that it was the city at which, from which, Canadian soldiers were sailing off to war mm-hmm. and coming back from war, and that a lot of their families had moved to, and that material had been shipped to, and so 
it is and and you can see that in the in like the ancillary part or the actually maybe the central part of the explosion right the the explosion happened because a Norwegian ship carrying relief for Belgium ran into a French ship that had been coming from New York going to the uh, the front in France carrying munitions and they were all under the command of the British Admiralty in the Halifax Harbor right like there's such that transnationalism is built into it right um but so a few a few years actually while I was at Harvard I I spent some time reading through Canadian textbooks to see Canadian history textbooks to see how the Halifax explosion was talked about and to the extent that it was it got a sentence and it, mostly the story was and this is how the war came home mm. and that strikes me as a very national story right right and it's because it's told in this World War One context. And I think that's true, right? That was certainly how it felt at the time that the war was coming home. People thought it was in a... There were lots of people who thought it was a German attack. And and so again, like I don't want to diminish that, but I, I do think that we we learn... We, we can learn a lot of valuable context by taking it out of that, na- that, that national and nationalist context. Right. right. And the same then could be said for Salem as well. Like, cause, Absolutely. Because Salem... I, I guess the other thing too, like you know, there's a heritage myth about Halifax, like so it it sort of held up as a, a, a to a certain extent as a national moment. Yeah. Whereas a fire in Salem wouldn't be this. I would imagine it's not the same in in the yeah. United States. Not only is it not the same. I mean, and this is a key thing about sort of the way I did was had to do my research was that Salem in Halifax everyone in Halifax knows about the explosion everyone in Canada knows about the explosion even some people in the United States do Salem the fire is largely I mean it was never certainly not known by other Americans but it's barely known in Salem because Salem has this other history that it likes telling about so Salem has the witchcraft trials which in fact a lot of like the heritage people in Salem will say no that happened in Danvers don't talk to us about the witchcraft (laughs) the witch the witches it has this like now this huge uh, stupid Halloween tourism industry yeah. as a result, and then they have this nineteen set this early nineteenth century East India trade story, which is right. what they really like talking about. And the problem is, if you talk about the fire, what you're saying is, oh, it's just like all of those other North Shore industrial towns. It's just like Lynn. It's just like Beverly. It's just like whatever Lawrence Lowell. And they lose their sense of specialness. Right. And so it's a very different, absolutely, it's a very different kind of experience, both doing research, but also talk. There's no, there's no narrative of the Salem fire that I am at all undoing mm-hmm. because like the previous, the previous literature on the, on the Salem fire could fit in a one hand. Right. Yeah, like it yeah. was like one master's thesis and a picture book published by the, by the museum. <laughs> that was it. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's definitely not true for Halifax. <laughs> no, definitely not. There's a lot more done about the Halifax. Yeah, although mostly popular stuff. Not There's been some, but but not very much scholarly work on Halifax, on the Halifax explosion. Which I guess makes sense because it would be in the context of the war, right? Like yeah. people who are writing about the years 1914 to 1918 are going to be writing about the war. predominantly or something to do with the war or like even the home front of the war and that the the explosion 
I mean, it's an accident, right? Like, there's, right. There, it's really hard to say much about it. It's not like it happened because of government faults or because you know someone was negligent or that it was an intentional attack of some. Right, and that's. Sort. I mean, that's, in the books that have been written, have been just on that question: was it negligence? Right. Wasn't the government's fault? And, or they have been using the Halifax. The Halifax explosion created these incredible records. I'm going to use the opportunity of this podcast to say, like, if you people are interested in Canadian urban history or social history in this period, everybody who got any aid from the Relief Commission has a file. And in the file, it says their age, like the family's age, religion, their wages, their job, uh, how much their house was worth, what their rent was. Like, incre- And then every time they got any aid from the government from the relief commission that was written down in a paragraph so there's these incredibly rich sources and that is in fact suzanne morton uh, in ideal surroundings her book about about how halifax urban history essentially uses these uses records next door to what i was just describing but other records from the relief commission and that's the way the halifax it's been used for the records Mm -hmm. i think it's also a really useful way of understanding the growth of the state in again, what Americans call the progressive era, I feel like Canadian historians tend to call it like a don't have a capital letter term for yeah. for it in the same way. But in this period of the growth of the states, because the 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 explode the relief commission created by actually sort of created both by the provincial and the federal governments was, but it was a federal, really federal, was this uh, progressive organization par excellence that it was. Uh, it had tremendous power, so it was a it was a court, it was a welfare agency, it was a city planner, it was a developer, it was a major employer in the city. Um, so everyone dealt with them, but then also it was run on this very progressive basis of we are doing what is best for the city, we are doing what is best for the people, and any and anybody who is after their own interest, for instance, building trades unions. Right. Are against what is best for the city. What is best what, for from what we technocrats say is best for the city, and I think that is a that is a way that we can look at these sort of unusual explosions or these unusual events and get away from their unusualness is by seeing what they represent. Right, like the, mm. this was a a super. This this was. This is representative of a. It's very. It's not that dissimilar to like the Imperial War Board or the Imperial Munitions Board, rather, right, right, right. Um, which has similar sort of fights about about workers and their interests compared to the so-called like shared interests of everybody. Right, and one of the things that I often say, and I, I wonder if it's a truism, is that states like disasters not because they want bad things to happen, because it does give them the opportunity to expand power and, and implement new new programs. So that, that that element is really interesting, and particularly in these two examples, because there's the class element that the majority of the people affected by these are working class mm-hmm. individuals. So that's another element on top of what's going on. So for as much as this is an interesting transnational story, it's also a working class story. Yeah. And, and I was, and a, I was and really a, trained like, as, a labor, as a labor and working class historian. Right. Um, although the other thing I would say is that Disasters always affect working class people more than anybody else. That there's no that that this is sort of just a because of the way disasters are experienced on a social gradient. It's always working class people who I mean they're both both have more hazards in their life, right? It's their workplaces that are more likely to explode or burn right. down. 
but also they have less cushion. They are more at risk when their house burns down. Uh, they're less likely to have friends who they can stay with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what you say is yeah, is correct, right? These were working class disasters, but I think also almost all disasters are working class disasters. Right, just because of the means to deal with it yeah, exactly. are, are not the same as, as with other people. So overall, like, you know, for as much as you say that this book is, you know, a, a, partly a call for transnational history, is there is there something that we can gain moving forward in, in not necessarily the methodology of how we study these sorts of things, but how we look at disasters? Because I'm really interested in this element, too, that... You know, we've had a lot of disasters in North American history um, that we could look at. And does this affect how we understand and interpret those and moving forward, because inevitably there's going to be more, mm-hmm. that's just the way things work, how we respond to disasters? I hope so. So um, I would love for that to happen. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> I really use disasters as sort of two... I think a lot of disaster historians do this. Use disasters in two modes of thinking. One is sort of as um, a camera, right? Like it's a way, in some ways my book is more about the progressive era than is about disasters. And it just happens that the disasters create an object of study and it creates a lot of paper that allow me, that allows me to to do that study. That's sort of what what Suzanne wore in in Ideal Surroundings, right? The, The disaster is the beginning sort of of it. But really it's just here's a suburban development that has a good paper, that has a good records, and the fa- the disaster sort of decides the point. But also disasters shift, shift history, right? Like, there are moments of change and opportunity for both, for, for lots of people, mm-hmm. and, and moments of contestation. So, so I, so I want, so I want disasters to be both an opportunity for study and also an object of study. And in terms of the object of study, my, I close the book with sort of Lessons for today, I guess you would you would call it. And I think, and what I say is that disaster responders need to be humble and need to understand the ways in which the ways in which citizens, and I don't necessarily mean literal legal citizens, but the way in which relief recipients um, push back, mm-hmm. and that they that they are pushing back for good reasons. And the basically, basically, the story of, or a big part of the story of my book is how, or the story my book tells, is how relief recipients are very eager to maximize the material aid that the government is giving them, and very insistent to minimize the amount of power that they are giving over their over their lives. Hmm. And what almost always happens, and I think this is, and I'm here, I sort of pull from. The history of welfare and the history of uh, the welfare rights movement in the United States is what always, almost always happens when the government gives you something is they want power in return. Is that it wants power right. in return? That's sort of the nature of states. Right. And what I'm interested in is the ways people, both intentionally and unintentionally, fight back against that. Mm. Uh, and I'm really, I'm really influenced by James Scott um, and thinking about legibility and about weapons of the weak and how people have how people have sought to remain illegible to the state. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is true in in 1914 and 1917, Salem and Halifax, but I think it is true, maybe not in in exactly the same way, but it is true in rhyming ways in 
New Orleans after Katrina or New York after Sandy right. or Port-au-Prince mm-hmm. after the earthquake or Sendai after the tsunami. Right. Right. And it's uh, so it gives us a framework to sort of understand what's happening and, and moving forwards. And, and it's really an interesting topic. And it does like the reviews that I've read have all sort of mentioned that there's these layers to it and that it's not a singular story of a disaster necessarily, but it has different layers and both methodological and in terms of the argumentation. So, uh, and it's been very well reviewed. From well, I hope so. Now. So, uh, so again, the book is Disaster Citizenship, Survivors, Solidarity, and Power in the Progressive Era. It's from the University of Illinois Press and available in paperback and allegedly available widely in Canada. Uh, I'm currently not in Canada, so I don't know, but the publisher says it is, so... If it's not, let me know and I'll give them a hard time. <laughs> there you go. And that, of course, is Jacob Remus, who you can find on Twitter at J-A-C Remus, which is spelled R-E-M-E-S, uh, who is finishing up his stint at SUNY Empire State and is moving up to Manhattan to... <laughs> Uh, the Gallatin School at NYU. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. This was fun. Uh, if you have any questions or comments for the podcast, it's historyslam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for him. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>